Writing well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now, let's buckle up and write. If you're a fiction writer, writing a killer opening sentence is the first step to engaging your reader. But how do you keep your reader turning the pages and reading till the wee hours of the morning because they have to figure out how the story ends? Well, you must create a narrative arc that scene by scene, plot by plot point, keeps the reader questioning. Paula Mounier, author of Plot Perfect, Building Unforgettable Stories Scene by Scene, offers a plot-building strategy that works no matter the genre you're writing in. Paula has used the strategies herself to write multiple novels, including her forthcoming Home at Night. In today's interview, Paula, a best-selling author, shares her proven strategies for writing a book your readers can't put down, including the importance of big story questions, powerful openings that make you instantly connect with the protagonist, and setting. Welcome, Paula, to our podcast. We are so happy to have you with us today. We are a big fan of yours. We love Plot Perfect. We use it as a resource with all of our writers, especially those who are writing fiction. So thank you so much for being with us today. Well, my pleasure. It's a thrill to be here, and I love to talk stories, so yay. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you became so invested in storytelling and the craft of storytelling. And can you just give us a little bit of background? We'd love to hear about you. Well, sure. I started off as a reporter years and years ago, and I did newspapers and magazines. But, you know, for me, real writing was books. It's always been books. I've always been a huge bookworm ever since I was little. And so when I got my first job at a book publisher doing production, I was a managing editor, I was just in heaven because I thought, oh, they're going to actually pay me to sit around and talk about books all day. This is awesome. So that's when I really sort of dug in. I knew story from being a reporter and being a journalist and being an editor, but writing book length fiction is much different. Book length anything is much different, right? So I went from there to acquisitions. I was an acquisitions editor for many years. Acquisitions editors are the people who acquire properties for book publishers, right? So I did that for many years. And then eventually... I became an agent. I joined my own agent's agency. I kept on writing, but I was mostly writing nonfiction. And then I was asked to write these books on writing based on my history. I'd worked for Disney. I'd worked for Gannett. I'd worked for Corcus. I worked for a bunch of publishers and media people and media companies, right? So I was asked to write this book on plot by yeah. Phil Sexton, who was the publisher of Writer's Digest Books at the time. And I said, plot? You know, everybody's written a book on plot. And so you could think of something different. And I did. So I, I had a thousand books on writing. I've always collected books on writing. And so, and read them all. And so then I thought, okay, well, I want to do a, a book about plot that's theme-based. Because I thought that was the one thing that, you know, you didn't really see that much of it was theme. So I thought, well, I want to talk about theme. So I wrote Plot Perfect. And then I wrote 
writing with quiet hands. And then I was asked to write a third book on writing based on my first 10 pages boot camps with Writer's Digest called The Writer's Guide to Beginnings. And meanwhile, I'd always had this secret urge to be a mystery writer. But I was always, of course, daunted by the idea of plotting a mystery novel. But by now, I'd written a book on plot. So that really wasn't a a legitimate argument, right? (laughs) I couldn't say plot a mystery. But what I did was, in the Writer's Guide to Beginnings, I needed a sample chapter that I could put through its paces over the course of the book, right? I couldn't do that with someone else's chapter, although I have lots of fabulous beginnings from all our fabulous, famous, most favorite writers. But I needed something that I had to write myself so that I could play with it over the course of the book and show tips and techniques and that sort of thing. So I just wrote the first chapter of a mystery. And I threw in everything I loved. I threw in Vermont. I threw in military family. I threw in dogs. I threw in everything I loved, nature. And my editor, my agent read it. And she says, you know, you should turn that into a book. And so that's, oh, how, that's, my, hilarious. Yes, that's <laughs> how my Mercy Car Mystery Series was born. And I'm now writing book six. So. Oh, well, that's fantastic. Do you know the title of what your book is going to be or? Well, book five comes out in October, and it's called Home at Night. Can you pre-order book five right oh, now? Absolutely. Is it- absolutely. Okay, awesome. Well, we'll link to that in the show notes because we want people to definitely check that out. So when you are an acquisition editor and then even a literary agent, and you were seeing manuscripts for the first time, at what point did you toss aside a manuscript? Or what made you say this has potential? And, would, and when did you say, oh, this is just so cliche, this has no potential? What were red flags, I guess, is the question I'm asking when you're an acquisition editor and a literary agent? Well, you know, it's not much different from being a reader. They've done all these studies, Barnes and Noble and Amazon, about how do people decide to buy a book? So it's usually a 60-second buying decision. So whether it's an agent or an editor or a reader, usually you look at the title, And the byline, and if you know that writer, that's half the battle, because you know that writer and you know if you like them or not. If you don't know the writer, and you won't if you're a debut, right? Nobody knows you. You look at the cover, if you have a cover yet, you look at the cover, and then you turn it over if you still like it. It still looks like your kind of book. You turn it over, you read the jacket copy, which is why jacket copy is so important. And then Mm -hmm. if you still think it's your kind of book, you turn to the first page, and that's where the buying decision is made, on that first page. So unfortunately, that's about how long you got. You got the first page, even when you're sending out to editors and agents, because we're looking for that feeling that you get. You know that feeling for that writer that you buy in hardcover, you're willing to spend hardcover bucks on, and you bring that book home, and you've got an afternoon or an evening to yourself, and you have a glass of wine or a cup of tea or whatever it is you like to drink while you read, and you open it up. And you're so excited because this is your favorite writer and you know you're in for a good ride. And you read those opening lines and they confirm the fact that you are in for a good ride. And part of you just goes, "Ah, you're in for the ride. That's what we're all looking for. We want that feeling. And when when we read a new manuscript and we get that feeling, that's what we're looking for. So does that feeling come from the writing, like the literary aspect of the writing, or does it come from the plot and what's happening in those first, or is it a combination of the two? It's everything. Something has to happen. And that something has to happen 
in language that's accessible and beautiful and evocative of emotion. There's a lot you have to do on that first page, which is why it's so hard. And if you're sending out queries for a new project and you're not getting a response, usually that means your query is not working. But if you send it out and people have asked to see your work and nothing happens, it's because your beginning doesn't work. And that first page doesn't work because that's all you've got. Years ago, there used to be this show on TV called Name That Tune. Could you name this tune an X number of notes? Well, that's about how many notes you got <laughs> on your first page. You have, to, you have to grab the reader and keep them turning those pages. That's really the secret. The only real rule in writing is keep the reader reading. Since we're talking about beginnings, I think a lot of our writers tend to struggle with that first chapter, especially because they're trying to write in all of this backstory and it's, there's like no action, there's nothing going on. And so what would you recommend to writers with that first chapter? Like, how do you write a good first chapter that will snag your reader's attention? Well, first of all, you eliminate all the backstory. (laughs) What a lot of writers have to do, and part of this is has to do with the process of writing a story. So often we are telling ourselves what we need to know to write the story in the, like the first 50 pages. So if you really having trouble, go to page 50 of your manuscript and odds are that's when the story really starts because you've been telling yourself what you needed to know to get the story going. But the reader doesn't need to know that to write it. They don't need to know that. So you need to start where something happens something big. And and the sooner you get to that inciting incident, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, the better, right? This is where the hero's world changes. And you need to get to that something happening. It doesn't have to be a car crash. It doesn't have to be an explosion. It doesn't have to be anything big. It can be your husband left you or someone left a note on your door, or it can be anything, but it needs to be something. It needs to be something that is going to change that hero or that heroine's, your protagonist's world. Do you have a favorite opening, personally, of all the books that you've read? Is there one that comes to mind that you think of, now that's a great opening, and if I could write an opening that good, wow. One of the things I always tell my clients is that you need to know who you want to be when you grow up as a writer. You need to know who the writers that you love that you and whose careers you'd like to emulate. Of course, in my next life, I'm going to be Alice Hoffman, but I know I'm not Alice Hoffman, but I could be Julia Spencer Fleming, who's my favorite mystery crime writer. And I wanted to, I want to be Julia Spencer Fleming when I grow up. And in her first novel, the one that won the Edgar, her first mystery, the opening line is, it was a hell of a night to throw out a baby. And on that first page, the heroine of her series is an Episcopal priest named Claire. And on Christmas Eve, someone leaves a baby on Claire's church's doorstep. Wow. That's one of my openings of all time. What do you like about it? Why does it work for you? Well, first of all, I'm a sucker for an abandoned baby story. Right. right. (laughs) I just love abandoned baby. You know, something about, like you say, the vulnerability of the building, and I'm a mom and a grandmother. So for me, oh, a baby, where's the mother? You know, all these story questions immediately come to mind. And that's the... That's what you want to do on the first page. You want story questions popping into the reader's mind. So you see that baby, you, you read that first line. It was a hell of a night to throw out a baby. You're like, what baby? Who threw this baby out? Why 
why did they throw this baby out? Where is this baby? Is Claire going to take this baby? And of course, she's going to take it. And of course, we love Claire because she takes in the baby. So on that one page, she's created a huge story question for the entire book, that baby. We love Claire because we love anybody who takes in a baby. So we've, she's accomplished one of the big things you have to do at the very beginning, which is make the reader fall in love with your protagonist. Make the reader want to follow this person through 350 pages of trouble. You've succeeded in doing that. So that, that first page, and it's winter and it's Christmas. I mean, what's not to like? What's not to like? That is such a good example. But there are also these like minor story questions, right? Like, how is this going to change her life if she takes in the baby? Or could, that's kind of a big question also, right. but not just what's going to happen to the baby, what's going to happen to her life because she's taken in this baby. Well, there's, you know, there's story questions. There's the big story question of the book, which in a mystery is usually who did it, who done it. And in a romance, it's usually will they end up together, right? Those kinds of big story questions. And then there's the story questions that you plant along the way. Each scene should have a story question. Each act has a story question. And then from sentence to sentence, you're planting story questions. And that's, that's the engine that pulls the reader through the story. So let's go there. Let's talk about the big story questions, because that's really your thing, which I, I love so much. Can you explain just in short term what a big story question is? You've been alluding to it, but if you had to put a definition to it, what would it be? Well, the big story question is the question that, that really propels you through the story. And what's interesting to me as an agent is I have to sell stories. And I have to sell them in 50 words or less, or I can't sell a story if I can't pitch it in 50 words or less. I've learned that the hard way. And if I want to sell it to Hollywood, I got 10 words because Hollywood doesn't read. So there you go, right? So if you think about it, think about the stories and what the big questions are. Like we said, in a mystery, it's usually who done it. In a romance, it's will they get together? Will these two people who must find each other find each other and live happily ever after, right? In a thriller, it's usually something like, will the good guy stop the bad guy from doing something terrible, say, like blowing up the Golden Gate Bridge and save the day? It's always a save the day question in a, in a thriller. So those are the big story questions. And if you know your genre, you'll know your story questions, right? But then you have to say, how can I make mine special? And I'll give you some examples like Easy, 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 The Martian by Andy Weir. What happens? When an astronaut's left alone on Mars and has to keep himself alive until or if he can be rescued. Very simple question. Cast away on Mars. Easiest pitch in the world. And then there's something like one of my favorite books this year, if you haven't read it, Razor Blade Tears by S.A. Cosby. And listen to this. This is high concept. And what a story question. What happens when a white father and a black father team up to avenge the murders of their gay married sons? from whom they were estranged. Wow, wow. Who could resist that, right? That's Who could resist that? So these are kind of story questions. And then there are other story questions too, like remember that movie Splash, Tom Hanks falls in love with- Yes, with yes. I think Allison is too young for that one, but I remember it was my favorite movie back in the day. <laughs> and it had a perfect story question was, what happens when the boy meets the girl of his dreams, but she's a fish because she's a mermaid? It's a great movie. You have to watch it, Allison. Great movie. <laughs> One of Tom Hanks' early, early movies, but it's really, really cute. But that's a great story question for a rom-com. The same but different. That's what everybody wants. The same but different. And how do you make your stories different? 
So you're talking about all of these big story questions, and I know we've already talked about it a little bit, but you also have like minor story questions. And I think you, in your book, you call them like leading story questions or scene questions, something like that. How do those differ from your big story question? Well, the big story question is the story that drives the whole, the, the question that drives the whole story. The smaller ones are the ones that you plant along the way. So every scene should have a story question. Every scene needs a point. So if, if you think about a story as a beginning, middle, end, and as one writer put it, you put your protagonist up a tree and you throw rocks at the tree, at the protagonist in the tree, until the end, rocks are cleared and they can come down, right? And the rocks are supposed to get bigger and bigger as the story progresses. So if every story rock is a story question, that kind of gives you an understanding of how it's supposed to go. You want to pull your readers through the story by having them watch out for those rocks. And every question is a rock. In every scene, the protagonist needs something, wants something. And he's either going to get it or not. He's either going to miss that rock or he's going to get hit by that rock. So what you need to do is plant those story questions so that we can see the journey. Because what the story usually is, is protagonist has to accomplish something by the end of the day, has to find his soulmate, has to find the murderer, has to save the planet. Whatever it is he has to do by the end, you're throwing obstacles, you're throwing rocks in his way. And every story question is one of those rocks. And every scene should have, which should be a rock. So it's a three steps forward, two steps back progression for the protagonist towards that end goal, which is that big story question. Can you give us some examples of obscene story questions? Let's take a rom-com. So one of the first scenes in a rom-com is the meet cute. That's what they call it in Hollywood, where the potential soulmates meet for the first time. And so Mm -hmm. say there's this guy and his name is Tom, and he really has a crush on the barista at Starbucks. But he's shy and he goes there every day and he gets his, you know, non-fat mocha. But he never asks her out. He doesn't even talk to her. But today is the day because his friend dared him and he said he would. Now he's under pressure. He's going to talk to her. So that's the scene. The question is, will he actually talk to her? And in the scene, let's say he does talk to her. But then the guy behind him jostles him and he spills coffee all over her. That Oops. So then he has to try again. That's the first rock. He has to try again, talk to her again, show up the next day order another non-fat mocha. And then, then what? That's a meet cute. They met finally, but it didn't go well. So they have to try again. He has to try again. And so every scene has a question like that. So in a rom-com, it's how will he manage that meet cute? How will he get a first date? When will he try the first kiss? When do they have their first fight? When do they break up as they inevitably do in a rom-com? And then how do they get back together? At the climax. So those are the story questions. And every genre has these conventions. Boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl. That's the conventions of a, of a rom-com. Use your own pronouns, but basically that's it. If you know your genre, you'll know what the obligatory scenes are. The meet cute, the first kiss, the first fight, the breakup, the reconciliation. You'll know the obligatory scenes. And then it's your job to make them fresh and new again. 
So how do you differentiate between scenes and plot points? Because those, what you're talking about there sounds a lot like plot points, but I think that you have a really nuanced definition of the difference between the two. Well, the plot points are the big scenes. For most novels, if you are like, say, 90,000 word novels, have between 60 and 100 scenes. And the plot points are those big scenes. They're the breakup scene. They're the wedding scene. They're the meet cute scene. You know, they're the big scenes in your story. If you know your genre, you'll know what, what, what's supposed to happen. And if you don't, sit down, have a movie night, pick three films based on best-selling novels in your subgenre and watch them and write down the scenes in every single one. As they happen, just write them down. I did this with Hitchcock movies when I wrote my first mystery. You do it for three movies. I guarantee you, you'll know how the plot should go in your subgenre. So that leads me to this question of, of should writers plot out their books before they start writing? And I'm sure that you have a very nuanced answer to that, too, because there are some people that are like, no, don't plot it out. But and some are like, well, plot it out, but it's going to change. So what's your philosophy on plotting out a novel? Well, I am a plotter. I, I need to at least know the big plot points of my story. And I need to know the big story question. And I need to know beginning, middle, end. I like knowing that. I have trouble. And I'm writing a series, which means I have to write a book a year, which means I don't have time to, you know, pants it out. Now, a lot of people, and some of my favorite writers and my very best friends, pants it. And they write crime novels. How they do it, I don't really understand. I think they just trust the process. and. Your subconscious knows because you've been reading, if you've been reading like you should in your genre, you will have come to writing a particular story in a given genre with thousands of stories in your head already. Your subconscious remembers them. And I think they just rely on their subconscious to, to, to help them out. I need more help. I need some conscious help. <laughs> I need some plot points. I need some roadmaps, right? I need some landmarks along the way. And it does help. And of course, when you're writing a mystery, there's two plots. There's the story you tell the reader, and then there's the real story that the reader has to discover. Because it's the story of the mystery, the story of the you know the actual time progressing in this in the story itself, the front line, and then there's the bottom line, which is the real story. So it's more complicated. So I need that, but a lot of people don't. They just trust. But even when they say that, they really aren't. They really aren't doing that because they'll say, oh, well, I have an opening image in my mind and I know what the end is. And I think right. they plot more than they, they admit to plotting. So what does the act of plotting look like for you personally when you sit down to plot out a book? What does that look like just visually? How do you, how do you tackle it? I mean, I'm sure it's different for every writer, but I'm curious about your own process. Well, I'm a big fan of index cards, sort of very, you know, analog kind of way to do it. But I just take out 60 index cards because that's 60 scenes. I know what my big scenes are going to be. Like in a mystery, so you have the first murder. You have certain things that you have to happen. You have to have a murder. You have to have probably two murders, another one in act two to keep you going. You have to have the sleuth going around talking to people, investigating the crime. You have to have the confrontation with the murderer. You have to have the apprehension of the murderer. You have to have danger. 
All these things you have to have because they're the elements that go into a mystery. So I know that already. So that helps me find my big scenes, my obligatory scenes, right? And then it's a question of filling in when I have those plot points, which are scattered through the book, right? From inciting incident to climax and denouement. And then I can plot the scenes that go from one plot point to the next. How do I get from the first murder to the first suspect? How do I get from the first suspect to the second murder? How do I get from the second murder to the confrontation with the, with the murderer himself? See, those are the things you can do. That's how I do it. I do it with index cards. Some people use Scrivener. They do the same thing with Scrivener. Some people, I have a client, she has a spreadsheet where she has all the scenes listed on the spreadsheet. I mean, I would shoot myself if I had to plot a novel as a spreadsheet, but that's- Me too. I would too. I hate spreadsheets. <laughs> I do too, but she, it works for her. So you keep talking about genre, and I think that's super interesting. And you're, what you're talking about, like for mystery for you, is that you have to follow certain tropes, right? You have to write in tropes for your genre. And so I'm wondering, when you are including certain tropes, how do you make your book unique from others in your genre? Well, that's, that's the catch-22, isn't it? Because what everybody wants is the same but different. Just, you know, insert best-selling novel here only different. And how do you make it different? So for me, I knew my own agent was going to ask me that question. <laughs> so when she said, I said, well, I want to be Julia Spencer Fleming when I grow up. I can't be Julia Spencer Fleming because there already is a Julia Spencer Fleming and she's brilliant. But I thought I could be Julia Spencer Fleming with dogs. So I have a heroine and a hero and they each have a dog. One's a search and rescue dog. One's a former bomb sniffing dog. And together, they solve these crimes. So I have that added element, right? So it's the same but different. So that's one way to do that. Ask yourself, what's the same but different? So think of somebody like Gregory Maguire, who took the fairy tales that we all know and love and made them different, just like The Wizard of Oz, only written from the point of view of the Wicked Witch. The same but different. That was such a brilliant, the same but different that he ended up creating an entire new subgenre, writing right. fairy tales from the villain's point of view. So right. ask yourself, how can you make my story different? How can I make my story different? Right? That's what you have to ask yourself. And that's a big question and it's a big challenge. But otherwise, you'll never distinguish yourself. There's no reason why anyone should buy your story if they can already buy the category killer. You have to be able to Articulate the difference between your stories and the successful writers who are already out there. I will say we have worked with writers in the past who say that their their book is mystery or suspense, but they don't start with the suspense. What do you say to people who are thinking, well, I'm going to do it differently, even though it doesn't work? It doesn't work for the reader when you don't do it that way. Is that what you just say? It doesn't work. The readers come to a certain genre because they've come to expect a certain kind of reading experience, and they're willing to pay for that reading experience. So you mess with that at your own peril, right? You have to deliver that reading experience that they've come to expect. You have to do it in your own unique way. You have to take those tropes, make them fresh, twist them, turn them. But you have to use the conventions of the genre. Well, I always tell people, you can play with those conventions. You can turn them on their head, 
but you ignore them at your peril because otherwise readers won't get that reading experience they've come to expect from a, a given genre. So before we get into setting, I have a really off the wall question that you probably, I don't know if you've ever been asked this before, but do the big story questions work for nonfiction? You have a background in nonfiction and reporting. Is there any way that you can apply the same thinking to nonfiction writing? We do work with nonfiction writers, memoirs, and also people who are writing trade trade books. I'm wondering if, if there is any application there. Well, there's there's a parallel. Okay. So there's a corollary. So in nonfiction, what you're giving the reader is a promise. I promise you that if you read this book, you'll have a better behaved dog. I promise you, if you read this book, you'll have a better understanding of climate change. I promise you that if you read this book, you will take away elements that will help you survive what this person survived in this memoir. It's a promise we're making to the reader. And it's usually right there, right there in the title, the promise, or in in the subtitle. And you have to deliver on that promise. So in some ways, it's very similar. Is there a sense in which you can re-engage the reader through tension in nonfiction? I know it's not, there's not action. There's not a plot with nonfiction. At least when I coach writers, I try to get them to think of how can you complicate things a little bit at the end so that you point to the next chapter that will solve a little piece of what you raise in the previous chapter. I'm wondering if you have any tips like that. In making that promise that you're going to have a better trained dog or know what to order when you go to Greece to eat, in making that promise, you have to break that promise down into a process for the reader by which they can fulfill that promise for themselves. That's how you get this narrative thrust. It's in that process. That's really helpful, Paula. That's really, really helpful. All right, back to fiction, because I know that's what you love and you're, you're super good at, but you have such a rich you know, background also in nonfiction, so I was interested in if you thought about that. So part of fiction writing, the elemental part of fiction writing has to do with setting and scenes, and so many of our writers struggle with setting. So do you have five or so tips for writers on how to write visually engaging settings? Well, setting is, I think it was Eudora Welty, right? Who said that if you could set your story anywhere else, you don't have a setting. <laughs> that, that setting is so, so intertwined with story that you can't have one without the other. And I think, I think there's some real truth to that. I think that for me, certainly, and I think for most people, first of all, you have to know your setting. Know your setting. Don't write about someplace you don't know anything about unless you're really, you can really do the research. And even then, I mean, as a reporter, I like to go. I want to go where my settings are so I, I can get a visceral feel for them. In my latest mystery, The Wedding Plot, which takes place during wedding season in June in Vermont, I decided I was going to set it during wild orchid season. In Vermont, mm. in this bog, Bog, it's called the Ladies Slippers. These beautiful wild orchids bloom once a year. They're very rare now. They're losing out to loss of habitat and climate change. But if you go to Bog the third week of June, you can see these beautiful lady slipper orchids. So I wanted to set the wedding during that season. So even though it was a 
middle of the pandemic, I put my mom in my car, we drove to Esquipog, and we looked at the lady slippers that week so I could see them. I wanted to see them for myself. And, and that just informed everything. For me, it really, really helps to actually see it. But if you know it, you know, you know it well, that's fine. But do know your setting because readers can tell. And believe me, you will get letters and emails and tweets from people who know you got it wrong and they will let you know in no uncertain terms exactly what you got wrong. And then I think another thing about setting is you need to really use the weather of a setting. If you think about it, I mean, I love setting my books in Vermont because in New England, because I get four seasons. I get, you know, in every book, I have another season. There's the heat, there's the mud, there's the snow, there's the ice. All of that contributes to the setting in a very, very big way. So know your setting, go there, write about it, and let it speak for you. Let it be a part of the story. In every single one of my mysteries, which is set in a different season, something about that season becomes an antagonist, whether it's a blizzard, whether it's falling through the ice, whether it's firecrackers on the 4th of July. Every season has its perils, flash flooding in the spring. So ask yourself, what about my setting is dangerous or, is, or talk about tension? has that tension. In the, in, the, in the South, in the summer, it's the heat. The heat, you can feel it, and it affects everything. It affects emotions. It affects relationships. And then make it your own. Too many writers have settings that we've all seen a million times before. Their classrooms, their offices, you know, we, all that stuff we've seen a million times before. I can't tell you how many openings I read that started a meeting. Nobody wants to go to meetings. People hate meetings. They hate them in their real life. They don't want to open a story with a meeting. Right, even if it's a high council on another planet, it's still a meeting. Nobody wants to go. Nobody wants to read about that. And then ask yourself if you're setting your story in a place we we think we know well, Paris, New New York, L.A. Make it your L.A. Show readers your L.A. Because there's all kinds of L.A. There's Bosch's L.A. Ask yourself how can I make my my setting. If we've seen it a million times before, how can we make it different? As you're writing setting, sometimes our writers will just include very dull and almost unnecessary details. So how do you choose which details to include that will actually engage your reader? Well, you know, there's a reason that Hollywood pays location scouts zillions of dollars to find special places that evoke the emotion of the scene, whatever it may be. If it's a scary place, if it's a nostalgic place, whatever it happens to be, you know, you want the setting to reflect whatever emotion you're trying to evoke in the reader during that scene. So that's really important. If you really want to know how to write scene, just read the opening of The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. That is the scariest house. And just by the way, she introduces that house. She describes it. And you're like, I'm not going in that house because bad (laughs) things happen in that house. So if you study the people who are good at setting, study the writers who are good at setting, then you'll know. You'll know how to do it. Analyze it. Your best teachers are your competition. They really are your best teachers. 
Tell me why people started meetings. It's so weird. We we also had a writer that started with somebody opening the door, like, come on in the house. It was like, uh, it just was a really boring opening. So why why do people start at such a boring place? Do they not know that it's boring? Do they not know that it's not an interesting? Well, I have to tell lawyers this all the time. I never met a lawyer who didn't want to be a writer. One, I know one lawyer who doesn't want to be a writer. He's a famous criminal defense attorney and his wife is a writer. So I guess, you know, he doesn't need to be a writer. But all <laughs> the lawyers I know, they all want to be writers. And a lot of them make great writers. You know, you have your John Grishams and your Scott Tarose and great writers who are lawyers. That said, nobody cares about the law except lawyers. So a lot of times it'll open with a, a meeting at the law office. Like, no, 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 no. First of all, it's an excuse for backstory. All those meetings of the high council where a lot of science fiction fantasy novels open that way. That's just an excuse for backstory. So they call it world building, but it's really just boring backstory, right? There are better ways to do world building than that. So I think that's why, because it's an excuse. And it's also, if, they, if, there were a, if they're a lawyer writing a legal thriller, they feel comfortable in that law office as a writer, but it's boring. So you have to point that out. So... How do you do world building if not through kind of long paragraphs of backstory? What, what's your best advice on that? Backstory and info dumping. I always tell people, write an action scene. Write an action scene and weave the backstory, what you really, really need, into it. My favorite example of, of great opening and world on the fly, as it were, is the opening of the Hunger Games. Read the opening of that of the Hunger Games again by Suzanne Collins. You get a sense of that world. No backstory, um, very little backstory, very little info jumping, but you you know that world. That is a great example. I think I referred to that recently and it, it's so true. She's not telling you all these things. She's just showing through very specific details what's happening in this world that she's created. Right. And I think the temptation is to show everything up front rather than letting it unfold over the course of a story. Do you, is that what your experience has been also? Everybody wants to do it all up front so they have some sort of backbone, but it's so much more interesting when you can let it out little by little. Yes, well, and, and you destroy, you know, the narrative thrust when you stop the story in its tracks to tell about the world. You have to show your characters moving through the world. And doing so reveals a world. You know, I think part of it is that we're used to movies, science fiction, fantasy, especially that genre where, you know, there's the world right on the screen. We don't, we're novelists. We don't have that. We don't have that advantage. So we have to build the world without the reader even noticing. That takes a lifetime of commitment to a craft. I think that that's part of it too, is that I don't know if you can speak to this. I'm sure as an acquisition editor and probably as a literary agent, you got a lot of submissions, pitches by people who had always wanted to be a writer. And so they they write a book and nobody's ever told them this is a lifetime of a craft building that you have to in, really endure. And so many people think they're great writers when they're not. Is there any way that you can judge your own writing before you go and pitch it to a literary agent? Well, hopefully, before you've done that, you've yeah. befriended other writers 
preferably ones who are farther along on the writer's path so they know something. You know, you've joined your genre association. You've gotten to know other writers, published writers. You've gotten to know your heroes. Most genres are very accessible. You know, you join your genre association, you get to meet all your heroes. You've taken classes. You've listened to podcasts like this. You've done your homework. And you've read, 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 read in your genre. And you've written and written and written and written. I was in my very first writer's group. I was in my late 20s. And I was in this writer's group in California. And I was the youngest person in the room. And this woman, the most published woman in the room, she was a professor, scared the hell out of me. And she looked at me and she said, it takes a million words to be a writer. And I, of course, was doing the math in my head going, okay, I got like 950,000 words to go. <laughs> but <laughs> I was way behind. But she, she had a point. She was right. Whether it's a million words or the 10,000 hours, it takes time to get to be good at anything. Whether it's golf or hockey or gardening, whatever it is. Unless you're Mozart, and most of us are not, you don't come out of the womb writing great prose. You just don't. So it takes time. And I think, I think the trouble is, is that people underestimate the time it takes. And they also underestimate how much work it is. It's hard work. And that's, that's the glory of it. And that's the challenge of it. That is a great note to end on. I have so thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Really, it's such a dream to have you on our podcast. We really think of you so highly here at Journey 66. And we would encourage everybody to go get Plot Perfect if you haven't already and check out Paula's books on Amazon. We'll link to them. Thank you so much for being with us today, Paula. We really appreciate you. Well, it's my pleasure. It's lovely to be here. And I'm always happy to talk about writing and writers. All right, Allison, that was an awesome, awesome episode with Paula Mounier. I loved having her. Again, you should go get Plot Perfect if you haven't already. All right, let's turn to our words of the episode. And I will go first. My word is vermilion, V-E-R-M-I-L-L-I-O-N. And it means a brilliant red color. So in a sentence, the sky was an angry vermilion, or you could say the sky looked angry. It was a shade of vermilion, or the sky was stroked with thick parallel lines of vermilion, something like that. So so it's a deep, brilliant red color. You probably are too young, Allison, but when I was young, before the internet, we had catalogs and you'd get these catalogs in the mail. And I loved the J. Crew catalog. And the J. Crew catalog always had these really specific and strange names for colors. So I can imagine they would say, you know, the sweater comes in the shade of vermilion. And I remember back then thinking, I'm going to become a copywriter for J. Crew because I love J. Crew and I love writing. So that's what I'm going to do. But now it's all in line. But they always had a way of describing their colors in complex ways. It's not just red, it's vermilion. So that is my word of the episode. So what made you think of that word this week? You know, it's one that I have heard and I don't, whenever I share word of the episode, it's often words that I've heard, but I've never been confident enough to use in a sentence because I've never used it in a sentence. And so 
I, I came across it. I'm like, you know, let me look it up. And then I'm like, oh yeah, it's a red color, but I wanted to use it in this episode. So I'd actually use it in a sentence. <laughs> and I feel like it's a great word to use in writing because it sounds pretty, it just, I think it feels more evocative than red. So I like it. Vermilion. Cause yeah. it kind of looks like chameleon. And when you think of chameleon, you think of things changing colors. So maybe that's why I like it. That's how I learned the word is that I read it in a book once because the author used it to describe the color of blood. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Vermilion. Vermilion oozing out of his body. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your word of the episode? My word is stelliferous, and it means having or abounding with stars or full of stars or having star-shaped markings. I actually went back to my dictionary. I have a 1987 version of Webster Dictionary, and it's not awesome. in the dictionary. Oh, really? So, no, it's not. But I learned it from a word of the day app I was using a few years ago. And the word just kind of stuck with me. But I remembered it because I was reading an article a few days ago, and they used that word to describe the night sky. I think they were like, it's a stelliferous sky or something like that. And I went, oh, I actually know that word. <laughs> so it's one of the few times that I've had a word of the day that I actually remembered the definition. I love that when you actually see the word being used. So how do you spell it? S-T-E-L-L-I-F-E-R-O-U-S, stelliferous. I think I can remember that because stellar has to do with star, galaxy, so stelliferous. Mm -hmm. I like it. All right. Well, those will round out our episode. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Allison Parks. Now buckle up and write. 